0: Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump as if he needed translation. We take a look at the current administration. We address the existential threats to America. There may be some right now. We'll take a look. We'll give it some thought. We'll give it some good conversation. Today, we'll hear from our good friend, Joel Farkas, along with Joel Kotkin, the two Joels. We're going to discuss our cities, governance, demonstrations, riots, homelessness, COVID 19 lawlessness law and order etc. Joel Farkas he's the director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel Kotkin will join us for the first time. Full introduction the presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University in Orange, California executive director of the Houston-based Urban Reform Institute. He's a senior advisor to the Currency Gardner Policy Institute. He's also executive editor of the website newgeography.com and a regular contributor to the City Journal, Daily Beast, Real Clear Politics, and other publications. He's also the author of the new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, a warning to the global middle class. We'll ask about that. Later on in the show, we'll hear from our friend John Hinderocker. He's one of the founders of Powerline, the president of the Center of the American Experiment, and lives in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Hey, Claude, we got a bunch of
1: emails. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's listen to one. Tell me what to write. You got it. Uh, Kim Pearson uh, emailed in. Uh, Dear Mr. Bennett, thank you for having Dr. Vizier on your podcast. I appreciated his
0: interest. That's Dr. Vizier from Canada.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I appreciated his insights uh, very much. Here in Ohio, O H I O, we haven't, yeah, we haven't yet got the word about Kate's uh, twelve schools for the fall. I think it's very important that the schools open back up. My grandchildren just finished uh, for the year. My daughter-in-law's observation is that the teachers started off pretty strong with virtual school, but haven't been uh, phoning it in for the last <laughs> few weeks. Uh, but have been phoning it in for the last few weeks. I should say it must be hard for teachers too. Uh, uh, to adjust, Dr. Vissier's comments about the uh, incessant news concerning the virus rang true for me. I can tell when I've watched too much; my anxiety, anxiety level goes up. If I'm honest, I know that part of what I so enjoy about my daily walk is the quiet. I just here we go. I just came across your podcast three weeks ago. It's so informative. The, inca- the occasional joking with Claude is enjoyable too. Thanks, Kim Pearson.
0: And joking with Claude? Yeah, yeah I
2: guess we, we do. We like um, to have
1: fun.
0: Um. Yeah. Good. Great. Well. Please continue to tell people. I look. The schools thing is a scandal. It's just crazy, and uh, I, I, I am not shocked to hear what Kim uh, wrote, which is a lot of these teachers started off strong, and now they're just phoning it in. And you're going to see a ton of resistance. I don't care what the numbers are in the fall from the educator groups to going back to school, and it's it's embarrassingly bad that that's the case because kids are not at risk and they're not even effective carriers of it to other people. Um, are there a few cases? Sure. But think of the harm that is done by 55 million kids being yanked out of learning. A lot of those math skills are gone. I just, I mean, that's, we could do a whole podcast on this squad. Maybe we will,
2: sure, maybe but we Kim
0: Kim is on it. And if, if they don't reopen the schools, I don't know, you know, if you want to take a real conspiracy view and a very partial view, let the red state kids be educated and the blue state kids stay, stay at home. I mean, I, mm. I hate to say that because everybody should get a chance at education, right. Right. but I'm worried that in the blue states where you have a larger number of poor kids, poor minority kids, poor kids who are, need school the most, they're not going to go back to school. And I think that'll be terrible. You have a very great situation. I don't know if you mind telling the audience about it with your Oh, sister.
1: yeah, absolutely. My mom's a retired <laughs> teacher. We homeschool uh, seven-year-old Manny, and he goes to Grandma's house uh, every day. And she, you know, grinds along with the work, along with his cousin Jason. And, and, and uh, yeah, so it's a great situation for for him. We're able to do that, but not many people
0: are. And Grandma's how old? Grandma is 61, Right. We're not worried about uh, sending Manny to see grandma, right?
1: No, 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 no. no, no. And grandma's not worried either.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's,
2: <laughs> that's true of
0: a lot of people who are over 60. <laughs> right. Go ahead, you know, go ahead. I mean, she would not give up that child's work for anything, would she? No, no,
1: no, not at all. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> no, great. All right, yeah, so we've got an email from Dave. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. Uh, Cray? Cray? Uh, from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, and by the way, Dave, feel free to email in and give me the correct pronunciation. Of your name. I don't mind being corrected. Um, he said, I, I listened to the May 26th podcast where Bill coined the phrase, the gloomy party to describe Trump's opposition in 2020. Uh, this contrast to Americans being optimistic sounds like a winning slogan. Please pass that on uh, to uh, the writers for the campaign. OK, <laughs> well, you, got a, you got a lot of uh, response, by the way, talking about just the optimism and the doom and gloom and gloomy party.
0: Yeah, no, the Democrats are so hangdog, you know, I mean, I you know we're all going to die from covid and, you know, it's horrible and everything's the country's falling apart. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, who wants to vote for that? Right. I mean, if you think it's true. You want to vote for something sunnier or mm-hmm. optimistic. But well, good. I appreciate that. I will try to keep my optimism. Look, as I tell people, I am a theoretical pessimist. I am with Isaiah in the Old Testament. You know, it's all wind and ashes in the end, all the creations of man. But operationally, I'm an optimist. Get up in the morning and how can we make things better? You know, how can I be a better father, husband, citizen, mm-hmm. host of a show, colleague, boss, mm-hmm. more patient?
1: Great one. You've been a great one. In very <laughs> <days. laughs>
0: <laughs> Never any problems. But anyway, no, I just think, you know, I was just watching Jake Tapper, whom I knew years ago. He was a cheerful, fun, interesting guy. And this Mr. Gloomface, just Mr. Unhappy. It's an unhappy party, full of complaint. As I said to the president, I don't mind repeating this. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the conversation. It's in the context of talking about COVID and all. Just say to the press one day, Mr. President, are you people impervious to good news? Can you just not? Take any good news, like numbers, the fatality numbers are going down, not up. Anyway, uh, he, he appreciated it and said, said, said a version of that the next time he was with the press. Good. Thank you. Thanks for that email. Keep them coming.
1: Yeah, our buddy Don uh, Ugliano uh, says, uh, switching directions a little bit, Bill, your eyes and emphasis has been on the China flu. The big story uh, that is being neglected is Pelosi's destruction of the House. We talk of the attempted coup involving Trump. We have an actual coup of the House. Uh, the House no longer meets as a body. The committees no longer meet. It's uh, only Pelosi writing laws, running the committees, and determining policy. God help us.
0: Oh, I think that's right. As we were reg- uh, regretting, as you'll hear in the, in the discussion with Joel Kotkin and Joel Farkas, the loss of debate, honest dialogue, there's a loss of uh, bicameralism. Uh, you know, that, uh, not the bicameralism, but bipartisan debate and discussion. Uh, serious meetings and hearings uh, where, you know, things are hammered out and people go into it with an open mind, not a closed mind, not their mind already made up. And um, no, if this is uh, it's a terrible situation. One hardly pays any attention to what comes out if it's just a, you know a pure political product. And uh, that's a shame. Another loss. Another thing to be regained.
3: You're listening
0: to The Bill Bennett, show. Bill Bennett Show. So let's welcome Joel Farkas and Joel Kotkin to the show. Gentlemen, Joel Farkas, Joel Kotkin, thank you so much. My goodness, a uh, lot to go on, talk about here. Joel Farkas, welcome back. Joel Kotkin, we welcome you to the first time to the podcast. Uh, appreciate your work very much. You do lots of things. Uh, main thing we want to highlight is uh, your new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, Warning to the Global Middle Class. Let's talk about our cities. I wanted to talk about our cities when we tried to get you, you know, a couple weeks ago. And now, boy, we really need to talk about our cities. Um, What's going on? Is there any common pattern, quite apart from the, the death of George Floyd and demonstrations and so on? about these cities that's worth talking about?
4: Well, I I described this in the book, the section in the book that deals with cities starts in Chicago and where you have this enormous difference between, you know, probably the nicest urban environment in America is sort of the Gold Coast of Chicago, Michigan Avenue. And then you drive 15, 20 minutes away and it's like a bomb hit. If you go to the south side, the west side of, of Chicago, just huge areas of destitution. And so, what you know, in the past, um, we may have had cities were declining, and they, the whole city was declining. Now you've got this sort of example of extreme wealth and affluence, and then incredible poverty with very little uh, path of upward mobility. And what that does is, you know, it certainly isn't what started the the current disorders, but what it did do is it does create a situation where you have large numbers of people who are um, who feel they have nothing to lose. They might as well do this. And what is also, and I think particularly interesting, is you know, in the past when there were these kinds of events, usually it was confined to South LA or or East LA or or you know, South Side of Chicago. Now they're uh, one thing is they're getting a lot smarter. They're going they're they're going to those areas where there's really good stuff to steal. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. And we didn't see that before. The other big difference is the fact that there's such involvement by white radicals. That I mean, they were there. I mean, I have I'm thinking of my experiences covering the 1992 L.A. riots. Um, they were there but they were not driving things. When you look at the videos, very often the worst perpetrators are not African-American or Latino. It's these completely deranged young white guys, um, mostly guys. And what you see is that they are part of, and I discuss this in the book, of this generation of millennials who, I mean, not to excuse their behavior, but they come out, they go to college, they get college debt, there were no decent jobs. They got hit in two thousand two, uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and then hit again. So you've got this this class of disgruntled, you know, white radicals, which is something we just didn't see anything like that in ninety two. You know, you always had you know your socialist workers party types out there, but th- this is this is on a whole nother level.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, I was watching uh, the news. Last night, and uh, came down to Soho and went into Chanel. Uh, the rioters, uh, the looters, and uh, someone told me in Washington, after leaving Lafayette Park, a number of people went up toward Chevy Chase, Maryland. Uh, you know, very wealthy suburb. So, what you're what you're describing is true. Joel Farkas, I invite you to comment whenever you want. I think you got to force your way into this conversation because these are. Uh, <laughs> We talk. I know Joel Kotkin talks. I've heard him talk a lot and want him to talk a lot. But uh, anything you want to
2: add to that? I'm not going to do this every time, but just count on no, you. No, no, I'll, d- I'll, I'll dive think. in. Uh, Professor Kotkin um, is, is one of the great uh, chroniclers of these items today in the United yep. States. But what we have is a disintegration of urban areas. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean if there's a disintegration of the United States, which is we can't lose sight of that. There's 19,000 municipalities in the United States. We're watching the results of urban areas disintegrating. And this has been going on for at least 50 years, not just last week. Um, And, uh, you know, we see it in homelessness. Homelessness is not pervasive around the entire United States. It's the top three places are New York, Los Angeles, and Seattle. And most of the homeless people come from those areas. They don't come from all over the country. And, 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 and there's, a, there's, this, there's this belief within the leadership, whether it's the, uh, the, the political leadership in these cities or the, uh, the business leaders, that they're the center of creation. They're the center of, of innovation. Um, I, 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 almost, I almost chuckle about a year ago the l a Times had a, had, a, had a headline uh, l a became the most homeless population in the country l a became that they had a new, new title and then they continued the headline but l a is still a national model yeah. um, it, it's just It's just hilarious that these cities cannot look at themselves and say they have a problem, but the United States itself is really the, the, the middle class of the country in the center of the country um they're making choices right now and they're making good choices we have to acknowledge that
0: i want i want joel kotkin to comment and i'm glad you opened that up because before we had these demonstrations riots whatever uh the trend there were trends going on in these cities uh, joel kotkin people leaving other things what trends were wor- worth identifying already going on in these cities which may be exacerbated by either the COVID-19 or um, the, the civil unrest and, and the like?
4: Well, I think there are several things. One, uh, as Joel suggested, um, uh, although there was a, you know, somewhat of an urban revival uh, that took place, let's say, between, let's say, the 90s and and 2015 or something, uh, the vast majority of Americans live in suburban or small town environments Uh, 80% of the metropolitan population lives in the suburbs. Um, I mean, I think that that is something people don't know. What has happened in the last three, four years is our big metros who were the ones most assertive about their centrality to everything um, have actually started to lose population. Uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York to start with. Um, And now we're pretty sure that San Francisco is also uh, experiencing a big... Um, out-migration and I think that will accelerate. So, you know, clearly there were there were problems that were already developing. I think there were several reasons for it. One, uh, cities became uh, uh, very expensive. Um, that certainly was, was a factor. It was built, they were building overwhelmingly um, very small apartments, not the kind of single-family homes that Joel builds. They were building places that were great when you're 22 years old, uh, probably not someplace you want to raise a family in. So you had that. Then you had the fact that the millennial generation, which was a very big generation, got uh, got older, and they decided that they actually wanted to move to the suburbs, which is all, what all the numbers are telling us. Then you have a crazy political environment, and I, I think this is very relevant for the last four days and also for COVID. The most extreme lockdown policies are almost all in deep blue cities. Lots of reasons why blue cities and dense cities were uh, more uh, vulnerable. But this has accelerated the economic decline of, of uh, many of these areas. I've been doing interviews in East L.A., South L.A. with business owners. They're desperate. They, they feel that they're, they have no hope. This is the bulwark of those local communities and then i think you have to add to all this the the fact that city administrations and oddly enough you know when you mention which cities have the worst problems they all are ruled by more left wing a sort of new kind of left wing politician who for instance thinks homeless people are it's okay if they defecate on the streets or shoot up in public that that's yeah. that's yeah. okay or the crazy stuff that we have here in California where a, a theft of less than a thousand dollars isn't even a felony yeah. And so you literally have gangs going around with calculators so that they, they can take less than a thousand dollars worth of stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's this sort of like a permissiveness towards criminality. And then they're releasing criminals on the streets as well. in, 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 law right. So what do you think is going to happen? Now, I personally, I'm not a conservative. You know, my heroes are people like LaGuardia and Pat Brown and Harry Truman and, you know, Bob Lanier and, um, you know, uh, the former mayor of Houston. We don't have that kind of social Democrat, you know, liberal anymore, whose goal is how do I make life better for for middle class and working class people? Could you imagine what what LaGuardia would be saying to homelessness on the streets and disorder i mean LaGuardia was very liberal politically and oddly enough in my family my grandfather was a republican and my grandmother was a socialist and they both voted for LaGuardia um who also married my parents so um so i you know i think that there is there's a whole great tradition of urban liberalism that has been replaced by something Really but, pernicious.
0: But Laguardia, you say, you know, he's, you're not a conservative. He would have done it differently. But if he had spoken his mind about homelessness, what would he have been called, Joel Kotkin?
4: Well, in in those days, they would have considered it <laughs> common sense.
0: Applauded. It him, was, but what would he be called now?
4: It would it would be called reactionary and yeah, sensitive. Sure.
0: Okay. That's the only um, point I wanted to make. Yeah. I, okay. I
4: mean, one of the things that in doing the work in the City Journal on 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 the on the pandemic. And the history, there was a whole kind of politics called sewer socialism, which I'm actually quite sympathetic to, which were the mayors in places like Milwaukee, clean up the streets, you know, have better training for people to get good jobs, um, improve sanitation, uh, better health uh, care systems. That's not what the today's progressives even talk about. That's right. Um, Right. You know, I mean, right now. I can be a, a lunatic, you know, white millennial anti person, and and not, and and break into the Apple store, and I'm I'm the great, you know, yeah, the edge of progressivism, which is just insane. You didn't improve anybody's life.
2: I wanted to pick up on something uh, uh, Joel Cockton just said about uh, how urban urban political leaders react towards uh, the middle class today. Uh, that's true. But the middle class, the center of the country, for, for more than the last 50 years, it has been a pejorative to say, I want to be a middle class U.S. citizen. I want to live in a single family home. I want to raise a family. I want to be close to schools. And I want to be um, able to go to my place of worship. That has been turned around by not only the political and business elite, but by the literary elite who say that is selfish. That is creating sprawl. You are defouling the environment. All those things, all those messages have been going on for 50 plus years. And what we end up with is a a situation that we can see right now, and we've been seeing it for quite some time, that there is no place for someone that I just described, even though that's the vast majority of the population. When we talk about homelessness, there's about 500 to 700,000 homeless people in the United States of a country of 330 million people. But there's several hundred million people that want to live the way I've just described.
0: That's right. I want to stay with this thing, maybe because I'm a city kid. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, live very close to Washington now. But the trends that you described, Joel Kotkin and Joel Farkas, uh, by the way, Joel Kotkin's uh, new book is The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, where this and other themes connected to it uh, are discussed, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Things that were going on in the cities already, these currents, uh, very expensive uh, difficulties in uh, you know, taxation, et cetera, et cetera. So we saw people leaving the city. I can't, I can't ask you to put numbers on it guys, but the trends were pretty strong and then COVID made it much stronger. Yes. And now these, these discontents, um, riots, demonstrations, make it even stronger. Are we going to see what was, tell me if my words are right, a trickle become a flow, become a flood. Um, uh, a real exodus
4: from our cities I, I think that we already have evidence it was already beginning to take place if, if larger cities were losing population uh larger metros uh, but i think this will be accelerated one very important point which we haven't mentioned is the rise of telecommuting and um yeah. and what that is that going to do to um traditional big cities you know i've been trying to figure out um a how many people are going to actually want to go back uh, and the polls will show a large percentage don't want to go back to, to an office. Second thing is, how do we do social distancing in Manhattan? Yeah. Uh, you know, my family's New York City since since 1900. How do you, A, get a, on the subway and social distance. You, yeah. if you can figure that out, you're, you know, <laughs> you're, you're way ahead of me.
0: A rush hour, particularly, right? So, a right? Rush hour. <laughs> yeah.
4: Then you're going to have the person coming in, let's say, to Penn Station or Grand Central, and and having to transfer. Then they're going to go to an office where yeah. there's an elevator, and then if you're going to social distance the elevator. Are they going to wait for an hour to get an elevator? Then you have offices. Now, one of the things we've been discussing with CEOs is that uh, social distancing, if you have social distancing in a Manhattan office, you're going to have to reduce your employee count by about 50%. Yeah.
2: And what are you seeing from the modern day urban planners to create uh, uh, better cities? Uh, let's have uh, more mass transportation. Let's have people living above Uh, retail stores and offices, let's have everyone condensed and compacted in smaller, more dense uh, uh, living, and somehow that is the response to good urban living, yet we can see it. The the middle class of America realizes that's nonsense, that they can't live that way unless, you know, unless if you have kids, you're not going to live that way.
4: You're just not. Well, one of the things that we find that's really interesting, right. let's say here in Southern California, one of the reasons and I've written about this, uh, one of the reasons why Southern California was not hit the way New York is, is that even though we spent $20 billion on mass transit, no one takes it. I mean, yeah. ridership <laughs> yeah. has been, right. been declining. Well, is that cultural? Why is that? Be- because the way Los Angeles, and by the way, most American cities, and I think Joel could talk about Las Vegas or Denver or, Which You know, Denver is a little bit more of a traditional city. The cities that grew after 1950 were car based. Um, L.A. became car based in the 30s. You know, L.A. is, as one architect put it, is uh, the original in the Xerox machine. All other American cities are, in many ways, descendants of Los Angeles. Nobody's building New York City.
2: So to follow up, the answer to that is th- there's no need for that kind of city and that kind of transportation. There, uh, people don't want to live there. And, uh, you know, where, where where I can name several cities that I have business in, Twin Falls, Idaho, Beaumont, California, Spring Hill, Tennessee, Keensburg, Colorado. You're not seeing them in the news if Silicon Valley in the Bay Area says technology allows you to do anything, anywhere, anytime, that means you do not have to be in an urban core to be part of what they deem to be the innovation capitals of the world. You can be right. other places. I remember a phrase in the what, 70s, 80s, uh, white flight. Is this
0: primarily white flight? Um, no, this is, is a, it, the
2: center of America. This is middle class America. Flight. It's not a racial flight.
0: No, no, but I mean flight from the cities. Uh, yes, well, the but, flight... but
4: but the the difference is that, and this is a very good thing. The kind of um, racial discrimination, let's say what you had with Levittown, for instance, where African Americans couldn't buy. That's that's pretty well gone. It's middle class African Americans, Latinos, Asians. They're moving to the suburbs as fast as possible. I can tell you who moved into my neighborhood—you um, know, heavily Hispanic and, and Asian. Um, after all, who has families in this society? Um, minorities are more likely to have families. Uh, they're more likely to have children. Um, so many of the people moving into these uh, suburban communities are are not uh, are not white. Um, they 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 come from. Okay. All sorts of ethnic backgrounds, and actually the greatest diversity in America today in terms of a metro area is Houston, which um, right, right. which is a very sprawling suburban dominated city, and I, and I don't see where any city um, has managed to turn that around that wasn't a, established what uh, Wendell Cox calls a legacy city, like a, a New York a Chicago, uh, to some extent San Francisco. Um, even a Seattle most American cities are multipolar cities with, with much of their activity and the vast majority of their population, not living in the downtown. There's always going to be a role for downtowns, but it's, it, it has not expanded to the point that the planners would want to see. And I think one of the interesting things about the last four days and really tragic is that you no longer can say, Hey, if I live in, uh in uh." West Hollywood, or I live in uh, in the Fairfax district, or if I live in uptown Minneapolis, oh, well, you know, it's horrible that these things are happening. And maybe I can smell something from five miles away, but it's not going to affect me. I mean, I remember living in the Hollywood Hills during the LA riots, and looking out and seeing fires in the distance. Well, now the fires are, are five minutes away. Yes. So, if you wanted to persuade middle class people to leave the urban core, you couldn't do anything better than what they're doing now.
0: Last question on this. Uh, I'll start with Joel Farkas. Does this mean we're going to see the end of the big cities as, we, as we've as we known them? They'll shrink the by, Un- by a half?
2: In the United States, we will. Maybe not will. in uh, uh, Europe or Asia. But in the United States, we're going to see a decline, a decimation, an inward catastrophe of cities. That has been self inflicted by them. You know, um, this is a time when progressives start going back to the Yates poem about the second coming, where they always uh-huh. quote, you know, things fall apart, the center yeah. cannot hold. Right. And then uh, uh, Joan Didion wrote this essay, and, you know, when she said, the center has not held. And then her, her nephew made a documentary uh, recently of her, the center will not hold. I mean, so this, right. this literary attack on middle class and the center of, the, of, 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 of society. Well, they're all wrong. The center is thriving. The center is thriving because they are leaving and not listening to the edicts from the intelligentsia that has attacked them. They just attacked them. Okay. Okay. Joel
0: Kotkin, is that a great loss to America? You and I are both uh, city boys. Well, first of all,
4: I don't think the cities are going to go away. But if they want to survive, they're going to have to reform. Mm -hmm. We forget that in, in 1920, Manhattan had two and a half million people. In 1950, it had one and a half million people. In 1950, Manhattan was the capital of the world. There was probably no period where New York was more important than 1950. So what what happened was you can make cities better and de-densify them. Um, And so I do think that there is some future for that. But one of the big issues, and I think uh, Joel Farkas uh, touched on this, is that because our media is now so concentrated in a few places and because most media in America now is owned by, you know, basically tech oligarchs and people like Bloomberg, what we've seen, and this is what I find tragic and I don't know how you deal with it. When I was coming up in the newspaper business and mostly the Washington Post, but there were great newspapers all over this country. The Kansas City Star was a great newspaper. Yeah. The Louisville Courier was a great newspaper Um You had the LA Times was a great newspaper. The Denver Post was a pretty good paper. So you you had voices from the rest of the country. Now we have such, almost all the news is national. Even like our little uh, Orange County Register, it's mostly New York Times and AP. It's the same voice that you would get in, in San Francisco or in uh, Manhattan. And so the the voice of the world that Joel's talking about is kind of like, you know, it's like when Jean Paul Sartre talks about if a tree falls in the forest um, and nobody sees it, did the tree fall? There can be massive movements of people. There could be places that are thriving, but if the media decides they're not going to cover it, we didn't know it happened. Yeah. So How we get the message about what we're doing to a a mainstream audience, I think is is a tremendous challenge.
0: What part of the, I want to come back to the Farkas, the Joel Farkas uh, hypothesis, Uh, the cities may be be failing, but the country's rising. What part or percentage of the country lives in large urban centers, Joel Kotkin?
4: Um, The the urban core, it's only about 10 10 to 15% of the metropolitan population okay which is which is the you know the majority of the population, so you know maybe if you extend it let's say even into sort of older suburban adjacent areas, maybe ten percent 10. 15% at the most. And
0: you agree with, uh, with Joel Farkas that, uh, that even the decline of our cities or the exodus from our cities does not necessarily mean the decline of, of America?
4: No, I mean, I think what we need to do is to, to begin to look at developing, if you will, cities in the periphery. Um, you know, like I'm thinking of, of uh, places like the woodlands outside of Houston. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, building new cities. You know, we used to do that as a country. We used to build new cities. You know, I know Bill Gates is talking about building something uh, outside of Phoenix. Um, There are a lot of these um, exurbs that that Joel talks about that are becoming in themselves their own urban center. You know, they may have some arts programs. They may have decent shopping. um, As they attract ethnics, the food actually begins to get decent. Um, you (laughs) you, You know, when I first came to California, when you drove from New York to, to the Bay Area because I went to school in in the Bay Area. Um, you know, sometimes you couldn't get a good cup of coffee until you got to San Francisco. Yeah. Um, you know, th- this is a very different world. And then you add to it the ability to work remotely, and then the ability to order goods that used to be only uh, the, that you could only get in Manhattan, San Francisco. Now you you can be in in one of the one of the exurbs of Denver. And you have access to the same series of goods that somebody in Manhattan has. Good news,
0: Joel
2: Farkas. Yes,
4: yes. Now, I think there's going to be some politically interesting things happening. A, we're going to see in the next census a huge shift to to red states. I think they'll have more votes. But the red states themselves are going to have to change because as you get people who came from the Bay Area or L.A. or New York to some of the communities that Joel's building, the politics are going to have to change a little bit. You're not going to be able to go to the kind of, you know, maybe hard right politics that we used to see in these same areas, just because the, the new generation uh, may not buy at least some of that. And that's,
2: and and that's true. However, when you're building communities in the areas that uh, uh, professor Kotkin is describing, um, it goes back to uh, his comment about the local newspapers. the issues that matter to the people in these ex-urban communities that there are their own cities are local issues. They are not some of these other, uh, uh, other items because those other items are not problems in those locales. They are, they have different problems. They have different issues. They're not immune to the world society. However, they're not in a situation where all of their local, demands all their local requirements all their wishes and wants and desires are ignored and what right. we are seeing are a lot of people in this country we, we hear in homelessness likes to call the people who are not living in the home the unhoused it's a nice new phrase well these are and we're hearing today about uh, uh, criminal justice and the unheard well there's 200 to 300 million unheard middle class center people in this country and they are not looking to somebody else for their answer. They're making these choices on their own. We 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 have the data. I'm I hear them. I listen to them. I build for them, but it's for them, not for me. I'm not I'm not running for office. I'm providing something for them so they can have the community that they want.
0: Well, that future, Joel Kotkin and Joel Farkas just described, be more like what he just said uh in these other than urban centers, or will the cities reform, improve themselves, get better, create more woodlands, or is the future much more uh, dispersed? I guess is what I want to say. I um, think, that,
4: yeah, yeah, I, I think the future is going to have to be dis- you know—dispersed unless <laughs> we, unless we commit ourselves to you know sort of this, you know, you can almost call it the fantasy of lock, of permanent lockdowns and um, yeah. And, and And sort of green urbanism, where we don 't allow suburban development, you know Joel Farkas is out of business in, and maybe um, sent to the gulag um, uh, you, know, um, you know the the hard um, and feathered because <laughs> what we see now in let 's say here in California is people are moving to the central valley inland empire if they 're not leaving the state that 's where they 're going, and yet the state is insisting. That they have to live in denser uh, places, and they you know, they won't allow anything to be built where people will drive, which, of course, is 95% of the population. So unless cities adjust to the new realities, people are going to leave. Now, in some states, like California, it may be very hard to escape. Um, in in other states, it may not be as extreme, Um uh, but but I think that that you're you're going to see greater dispersion. And I want to just say something about this in the in the history of this you know, this country. One of the beauties of and uh, Dostoevsky wrote about this of America was that there was as he said the, the intelligence was scattered all over. Yeah, and yeah. He could go, yeah. you know. Whereas Agreed. let's say in France, for instance, if you're not in Paris, you're just you know you're just nowhere. I mean, everything else is peoria. You know. Um, for, uh, Paris is completely dominant. Same thing's true in the UK now with London. Um, what we're seeing is that people in um, in the United States, all these small cities. I've been doing a lot of work on small cities. They're getting young millennials are moving to the small cities. They're moving to the exurban developments, um, and um, and this is reviving what the Tocqueville saw. I think the the project of you know, the I, you know, progressive, although I would call them regressive left, is what's what's put everything into five or six big cities. I mean, literally, you have people talking about in New York, including some conservatives. Oh, New York needs 12 million people. And I'm saying, well, they can't handle eight million people. Yeah, Paul Krugman
2: won the Nobel Prize on that very topic. Right. 10 year, 12 years ago. That was the that was the basis behind him winning the Nobel Prize is that the only thing that mattered were the great urban centers of a country and they would deal with they would deal with other urban center, centers around the world right. and that there was really no purpose. For the rural or urban or, sub, or exurban or suburban areas, there was no reason for them to be.
0: You know, you know what you made when you guys talking about this. I was just thinking about a friend of mine who used to work for the Harvard admissions department, and he said Harvard and Yale and Princeton, etc., were pretty much all the same until Harvard discovered Nebraska. They discovered that there were smart kids all over the country. <laughs> and so they made it their mission to find them. Well, it's a, it's an interesting point. I mean, that's you know, it, it's not Tocqueville's Paris. It's not the spider. I remember he uses that figure with the fat body and then just spindly legs everywhere. Yeah, uh, there's wealth, intellectual wealth, wow. talent everywhere in this country, uh, and 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 that's being rediscovered. Um, a great point.
2: I, Julie. I, I, I don't want to add one. Uh, one yeah, more please, Joe for Yeah, uh, and, and this is a a, a nod to. Uh, uh, joel Cotkin's new book about the neo-feudalism that's what i was just gonna george, ask george orwell in the 40s wrote about this and, and he actually wrote about Yeats. he said his ideas his themes are futile yes not not futile but futile and that it came from this notion that that knowledge and 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 intellect is with a select few and that mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. he kind of didn't like uh, uh, freedom. He didn't like uh, democracy. You know, people like these things don't like that. They want to be under control and under the auspices or in control and have people under their auspices. So this notion of feudal behavior has been going on a long, long time. And I'm really glad you named your book that because it's a theme that's, that's, uh, that's, that's pervasive.
0: What what is the new the new feudalism the neo feudalism Joel Kaplan? Well,
4: the the new feudalism really describes a world where, um, th- where first of all you have low economic growth, particularly for everyone but the very wealthy. So there's no there's very little upward mobility. Society is increasingly controlled by a very small number of people. One group is the oligarchs, who are basically the tech companies whose power is so overwhelming as to make the moguls of the last uh, the, of the early 20th century um, seem insignificant. Because as bad as they may have been, uh, they didn't control the flow of information and culture the way the oligarchs yeah, do now. Yeah. And then the second powerful group is what I would call the clerisy, which is the media, entertainment industry, ac- um, academia, who are essentially playing the role that was played in in feudal society uh, by the church. They're not particularly religious, but they they do define what is true and what is not true. Um, And one of the things that's characteristic of a feudal society is, A, a lack of mobility in the middle class, which I would call the yeoman class, which is the small property owner, the kind of person who might buy a a house from Joel Farkas. and then the, the group that we're now seeing on the streets, which is this large surf class, young people in particular, including white young people, who feel they're never going to own a business, they're never going to own a house, they have no stake. This is where I have problems with a lot of conservatives who think, well, the market is efficient, you know, the market is God. Well, the market is not God. You know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, you can't have a democratic society uh, that functions if, if property is in the hands of very few people and that the more younger people and minorities and immigrants say, there's no way I'm going to have the American dream. I, my argument is why not vote for Bernie Sanders?
0: Yeah, yeah, understand. Why
4: not vote for whoever's going to give you the most stuff you could possibly get? So what you get in a feudal society is uh, what Marx called uh, the proletarian alms bag. You know, everyone becomes dependent on a transfer, what doesn't happen is the idea that I'm going to be able to go buy a house, start a farm, start a business, and I'm going to have the American dream. Even if I came from a poor town in the in the rural South, or I came from India, or I came from Mexico, that dream is, once you get rid of that dream, then you begin to move into a much more feudal society. And then the last thing is one of the things that kept feudalism together was a kind of religious belief, a kind of, and w- instead of religion today, you have climate change, and and the pandemic. You know, it's fantastically interesting to me to watch um, the green movement actually applaud the lockdowns. They actually think yeah, this is great. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. the model for creating the kind of authoritarian society that Aldous Huxley warned us about.
0: Right. I don't
4: think we're headed to 1984. I think we're headed towards Brave New World.
0: Yeah, no, I've always thought so. I thought when Neil Postman was writing his book that it was much closer. But I want to ask Joel Farkas, neo-feudalism is not our future if there's more Twin Falls and
2: Tulsa's than New York and Chicago. Is that right? Isn't that right? No, it's exactly right. And we know that if you, a family or, or individuals who, who rents an apartment, their net worth is very, very low. We know that people who own a home, their net worth generally could be as much as 20 or more times higher. We also know that that wealth created for average, normal, center, middle-class people, the greatest wealth that can be created in their family's history is property ownership and home ownership. And we also know that a lot of progressives over the years have attacked homeownership as, as a selfish, individualistic uh, a, right. a way of life. Right. And, and that singularly, in my opinion, singularly, over everything else we could talk about, is the biggest attack on minorities and middle-class U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm.
4: Minneapolis is well known for having eliminated single-family zoning.
2: Right. Um, That's right. And
4: L- L.A. is actually considering it. To me, it's really an attack on aspiration. And sure. what we want is we want society to be ruled by the aristocrats, the tech uh, um, oligarchs, the clerici, and everybody else becomes a serf and, and, and has no ability to, to gather property. The, a great irony politically is going to be will the oligarchs realize that someday the AOCs of the world are going to go after them? Oh. Uh, you yeah. know. I mean, now, you know,
0: in other words, when Donald Trump assumes the form of AOC rather than Donald Trump, right? right. Then they'll be surprised. Gentlemen, right. we got we got to leave it there. Thank okay. you, Bill, Joel Thank you. Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. Joel Kotkin, many affiliations, uh, but most important, we wanted to stress the author of the new book, "The Coming of Neo Feudalism." Thank you, gentlemen, very very much. Thank you. Thank Let's you, do Bill. this Thank again. Thank you, Bill. Let's Do this again for sure.
1: You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show.
0: Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. It's time to jump in with John Hinderocker. He's one of the founders of Powerline and the president of the Center of the American Experiment. John, thank you for your time today.
3: Hey, happy to be with you, Bill.
0: So, you know, we're trying to get you, and we've had you on before, and of course, the only topic we were talking about was COVID-19. What happened to COVID-19?
3: Yeah, I guess the face masks aren't quite so important anymore. All of a sudden, that's uh, kind of gone out the window.
0: It's amazing uh, to think that people were threatened with arrest for not social distancing in New York and other places. And then you see these pictures of these peaceful protesters, plus uh, and uh, no enforcement. I saw some some joke was going around. Anthony Fauci said, no more than 10 looters at a time in the store, please. So, <laughs> but, but I mean, it suggests, doesn't it kind of suggest the lightness or in some ways the evanescence of the whole COVID thing? I mean, as a serious thing, people died. I know that. But the hype was so intense. Isn't this bill, a kind I, of proportional
3: I, response? I'm an outlier on this, Bill. And, and a lot of it really comes down, I think, to what you happen to be afraid of. You know, one of the things I learned a long time ago is that everybody's afraid of something, but it's not the same thing. And there are a lot of people out there who personally were really afraid of COVID-19. I looked at it, I looked at the symptoms, I looked at the data and I said, well, you know, it's a, it's a disease but it's not a real bad one. I mean, here in Minnesota, over 80% of our deaths right, have been people right. in nursing homes. And, and that doesn't mean that COVID-19 was even the cause of death. It just means that they were diagnosed as having it, you know, when they died. So I always thought from the beginning, Bill, that the, that the reaction to COVID-19 was just a gross overreaction. And I think it's been kind of clarifying with, with the riots going on around yes. the country. It kind of shows what people really care about, you know, like you were saying. I mean, all of a sudden uh, there's something going on that's a lot more serious and nobody's talking about, you know, uh, social distancing,
0: right, 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 right. A clarifying moment. Well, well who was that uh, actress on uh, Saturday Night Live? Roseanne, Rosanna Dan, I can't remember her real name, but remember she <laughs> yeah. said, "Oh, never mind, no, COVID 19 yeah. Oh, never mind. But I mean, yeah. and and uh, yeah, no, I think and the most amazing thing you guys did so much on this on Powerline, indebted to you, was uh, when you started to point out the age, average age of people who were dying from this, and. Uh, And then I read somewhere just the other day that um, 60, 70% of the people who died, people predicted would have been dead within two years uh, without uh, the COVID-19, plus the mystery, this whole funny business of if you die with COVID-19, it's classified as dying of COVID-19, which is a little suspicious.
3: Yeah, I mean, th- there was a the senior doctor in the Illinois Department of Health. They were doing a press conference, and she was the most blunt about this of anyone that I've seen. You know, she said, look, we are not saying when we classify a death as COVID-19, we are not saying that was the cause of death. could be a person who is in hospice care dying of cancer. Right. But if he if he's diagnosed as having COVID-19 at the same time, you know, he goes in that category. But we are not telling you it's the cause of death. Yeah, no,
0: that's it. That's it right there. Let me conclude this part of the conversation with you by by telling you this, because it kind of summarizes that. I was talking to a publisher who said you need to write. I saw your columns on on COVID and you and you and Seth Leibson need to write a book about this, uh, pointing out that how this is resolved and whether the economy comes back and where we are in COVID-19 will probably largely determine the outcome of the presidential race. And I thought, okay, this was, you know, three weeks, three weeks ago. Okay. Talk about it. Got a call yesterday. Well, actually we're thinking what will determine the outcome of the presidential race (laughs) fill in the blanks, John, is not the COVID-19 but the resolution of what's going on in our cities.
3: How fickle And Bill, we are. it's only June. You know, November's know. a long way off. We could have something else determining the election before we know it.
0: Right, right. But until that occurs, let's talk about this. Minneapolis was courted, sort of ground zero uh, on, the, on the demonstrations, riots, et cetera. What's the situation now?
3: Well, I think it's calmed down, Bill. I think the looting and arson uh, and rioting, have diminished over the last three nights because our governor finally, uh, called out an adequate National Guard force of several thousand guardsmen. And, you know, they've cracked down on the, on the rioters. And of course, you can only riot for so long. You know, there's a, there's a natural life to these things. And so I think as of, as of last night, it's pretty much quieted down, but it was, it was horrific. It really was. I mean, on the first night of rioting, there was virtually no police presence there was a seven story building under construction that was that was going to be subsidized housing when it was completed the uh, rioters set it on fire it burned to the ground you probably have seen pictures it was a spectacular fire they looted a target store uh nearby on on lake street in, in in minneapolis and um and just devastated you know countless small businesses in in minneapolis and to a lesser extent st paul And then the second night, the rioters actually took over the third precinct police station in Minneapolis. They drove out the police officers, and they burned the precinct station to the ground. And that night, our governor, about 2 o'clock in the morning, gave a press conference, and he said that the mayor uh, of Minneapolis, his efforts had been an abject failure, and that he, the governor, was going to take over. Well, the next night, you know, things didn't get any better, uh, and then finally, <clears throat> after about four nights of 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 rioting, uh, the governor got enough uh, National Guardsmen in, into the mix. And, and plus, I think there's just a natural cycle. You know, you can't you can't keep rioting forever. And so now things are, are, are pretty peaceful. But the damage that has been done in in many in multiple ways, physical damage and other other damage is just incalculable.
0: Now, what's the theory here? Or was there a theory? Um, I, I was saying uh, this morning. Last night, we saw the president walk to St. John's Church and, you know, I was asked, uh, well, what, what about this? I mean, he said, I'm the president of law and order. Uh, I said, well, he is and he has that responsibility. And of course, law and order will obtain. I mean, we will have law and order. That's a requirement. Uh, pause from the, from the questioner. Well, is that so important? When did that stop being the sine qua non? I mean, is, is, was that your governor's problem? Do people actually think maybe it's not it's not a sufficient condition of a good society, but it's a necessary condition of a, a good society, isn't
3: it? Well, here's what I've noticed, but we were talking earlier about, you know, clarifying moments when you find out what people really care about. I think you can apply that to the looting and the rioting, because there are a number of people on the left who are encouraging the looters, encouraging the arsonists, you know, cheering them on. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, the rioters are, are arriving in my neighborhood. I actually did a post on this yesterday on, on Powerline, a couple of examples of, of left-wingers on Twitter who are cheering on the looters, and then, oops, wait a minute, they're looting my office, or they've come to, to my gated community, and then all of a sudden, it's a totally different story. Now sorry, now they're animals, you know, and the police have yeah, to yeah. crack down on them. So, so I think everybody knows that law and order is important when it comes to you and your family and your house, Right. But I think there are some people who are so kind of clueless and cavalier that they're willing to tolerate, uh, you know, what I would say is a high level of, you know, violence and disorder, as long as it's not directly affecting them.
0: This could be a very big deal for the presidential election, right? It could be, especially if we have a long, hot summer. We don't know what else might happen. Do you think most people's sympathies or views are, and here I'm getting into a place I don't want to get because I sound like one of these left-wing professors, whose narrative, you know, are we talking about? Because there is there is a truth to things. It's not just your narrative or my narrative. There is there is such thing as the truth. But a lot of people believe that this is a very good society overall. We have racism. We have some racists, a few, some. It's manifested, you know, in, in, in terrible ways occasionally. But it's not what most of America is. But it strikes me that there's an increasing number of Americans, maybe because of colleges and universities and what's taught in the schools, who believe that we are essentially corrupt and racist society. Am I wrong about that?
3: I think you're right. I'm afraid you're right. And I think your diagnosis is correct, too. I think we're seeing the fruit of several decades of terrible, uh, terrible, terrible educational system and of, of students being deliberately and systematically misinformed. I think that is uh, that is part of what we're seeing. But when I think more broadly, Bill, I think a large majority of Americans view these kinds of issues in a in a similar way and as they have no desire to discriminate against blacks or anybody else. Why should they? You know, there's no you know, there's no reason to do that. No, I mean, the the number of people who, who have any interest in in suppressing or keeping down any minority group is, I think, tiny. And so there are a lot of people of goodwill uh, who say, "Look, you know, I don't want to discriminate against these these folks or anybody." And and if we can get peace and quiet uh, and and move forward by by not discriminating against them, let's not do it. And and I think what you then get to, Bill, is the empirical question that's at the root of a lot of what's going on right now, which is, is there some kind of uh, systematic oppression of African-Americans carried out by America's police departments. And many, many people believe that the answer to that question is yes. And so when you have something like the death of George Floyd, people immediately fit it into that narrative and they say, here we go again. It's racist police officers murdering uh, a black American. And, and, and many, many people uh, fall into that now i think if you actually study the data as as our friend heather mcdonald has done our mutual friend um you know you find that there's very little support for that assumption and that really um you know from a racial standpoint in general across america uh, policing is very even-handed you know we we had a terrible fiasco in the minneapolis police department two or three years ago when a an officer, uh, for no apparent reason, I mean, it was inexplicable, shot a 40-year-old woman uh, who was standing there in her pajamas, who was the person who had called the police. Yeah, remember that. <laughs> and that was a, a, a an African-American policeman named Muhammad Noor uh, shooting a, a white woman. Yeah. And it was totally incompetent and inexplicable, but it didn't lead to race riots, you know uh he he got prosecuted and he's currently in prison uh but there were no race riots and 3 years later we have uh a, a more or less equally inexplicable and incompetent fatality only this time it happens that that, that two of the four police officers involved are white and the uh and, and 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 the guy who died is black and so now you know that that produces race riots so there's a narrative there that a lot of people have uh, have bought into
0: and, and and which is the more persuasive narrative to most of the American people? What I'm what I'm getting at, not to be coy, is I heard the president and the president said kind of an odd locution. I am the president of law and order. Maybe he meant to say it exactly like that. It was I, I, it was it was a little odd, but but there ought to be a few more words in between. I am the president, and I will be sure there is law and order but I'm the president of law and order. Now, this is what, you know, was said in Annas Horribilis, uh 1968, right? This was a, this was an appeal. Um, it, it, is it persuasive? Is the president not, not doing the right thing, but is the president doing the politically prudent thing in what he is uh, saying, walking to St. John's, having that area cleared and so on?
3: Well, I think so. I mean, whatever people think in general about this goes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, whatever people might think in general about policing practices and so on, in their own community, in their own homes, people want law and order. And and to the extent that, that you know, people see these images of violence and arson and rioting, they don't want that coming coming near them. And so I think that in general, he's on the right side of the of the issue to the extent that he's he's in favor of law and order the problem he's got i think bill and i've been seeing a lot of people recently analogizing as you just did to 1968 and there's some political science data that suggests that the riots that year were instrumental in in richard nixon winning the presidency and i believe that you and i are old enough bill we were around in 1968 yep, right. and i just i don't know anything about the data but i'll say based on my experience i think it's true i think the riots helped richard nixon and he was on the right side of that issue, law and order. The problem is Nixon was not the incumbent. You know, Trump is the incumbent. And uh, I don't, you know, it, it, that's a big problem. Because if you're an incumbent president, every incumbent president wants to run on a platform of peace and prosperity. If you are the president and you can persuasively go to the people and say, and say four more years of peace and prosperity, you're going to win. I think, that's, I think that's what history tells us. And as of January or February, President Trump was perfectly positioned to do that. After three years in office, we'd had peace, we'd had prosperity. And then the COVID virus came, the shutdowns came, the stock market dropped, millions unemployed. All of a sudden, you know, he can't just say, you know, more, you know I'm the president of prosperity, and likewise, uh, all of a sudden, we don't have peace anymore. You know, we may have peace overseas, but we don't have peace in American cities. And, um, you know, I think as the incumbent president, um, it, it, it it hurts him.
0: Yeah, there was, it was sometime around Reagan, either the first term or second term, where this, in some ways, I think, became almost a cardinal rule of American political life. What happens on your watch, whether you're responsible or not, is... Is your responsibility? Yeah, um, right. I mean, the, the misery index. You know, you're better off than you were four years ago, and yeah. um, and it it may, it may not be fair, but it's how it's measured, and that's what you're that's what you're saying here, right? I mean, peace and prosperity doesn't seem so peaceful right now. Prosperity, where we're going to have to have an awfully sharp V curve to get back to that.
2: So that that's is exactly right.
3: Yep, there is no sane argument that either the virus or the shutdowns or the riots are Trump's fault, you know, but at, at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter.
0: And does, does Joe, just speaking politically here, does Joe Biden's vibrancy, it's an odd term to use about Joe Biden, or lack of it, matter? Is he just the, the non the non-incumbent?
3: Well, the Democrats hope that they could kind of keep him in his basement for the next few months. And they, do, the they? I, they do, they don't they? Really they do, really do. Oh yeah. God, they totally yeah. do, and and they want the election to be a referendum on Trump. And Biden is the guy who's not Trump. the The reason why I can, you know, I, I, three months ago, four months ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said Trump had a ninety nine percent chance of reelection. And and the the reason why I'm still relatively hopeful, although that certainly isn't true today, is that he gets to run against Joe Biden and the Democrats can't hide Joe Biden in the basement till November. I mean, the man is visibly of diminished capacity and he was never the brightest bulb to start with. You know, I I think it's going to be a very strange election.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just absorbing the point you're saying. I think they would like to keep him under wraps. But they're putting him out there now, and and we'll see. They prefer a kind of version of the Rorschach test, right? You can just attribute whatever virtues to him you want, and as long as he's not out there dispelling them, uh, you can say, well, he's a good and decent guy, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's, and that's Trump's problem. And, and does Donald Trump also make problems for himself? He does, right? I mean, I, I like Trump. He, he, he but,
3: does. Uh, yeah, you know, he does. I mean, uh, every, his fans like the fact that he's combative. However, and, it, and, it, and of course, it's not mainly his fault. He's mainly acting in self-defense because the, the press is constantly after him every every single day. The problem is, you know, you combat fatigue sets in. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of people who generally think Trump has done a good job, uh, but who are tired of, you know, years of this daily uh, conflict and would like a little peace and quiet <laughs> and i think yeah. to some extent uh, you can blame trump for you know kind of keeping those flames f- flames fanned
0: uh. yeah no he's he, he 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 lives on it he's a new york guy he uh, he's a tough guy um and uh, even as he's you know going over to saint john's church he's kind of waving his fist <laughs> You know, that's that's the that's the nature of the guy. It's part of the try. I noticed that with the ad, latest ad they have for him. Well, it's not the usual kind of guy, but this is the guy who gets things done. Well, we shall see. We shall see on on the uh, demonstrations and riots. How does this turn out? What happens in the next month? Does this go on all summer? I don't think so. Does it?
3: I don't think so. Uh, I could be wrong here, but I don't think so. Um, I think the country is very different from what it was back in the in the 1960s one way in which it's different is there's been a lot of, of economic progress among african americans you know the big ghettos you know watts and so on i don't think we've really got those big ghettos anymore there's been a lot of upward mobility and there's still some people who will turn out and are happy to loot a target store and you know fill up a shopping cart with electronic goods and walk out with it you know or set something on fire but they're but they're a small number. And I think one of the things we've seen here in the twin cities is um, it takes a substantial police presence and in this case, national guard presence to suppress those rioters. You can't just um, have a handful of policemen stand out there under rules of engagement that, that prevent them from doing anything serious, you know, to stop looters and looters. will just walk right around them and loot, you know, or set things on fire. But, but if you have a substantial, uh, Uh, law enforcement presence, you know, you you can suppress these things. And I I don't, you know, people talk about Antifa and so on, and absolutely they're out there and they love this kind of stuff. And they send people out to try to take over and commandeer these, these, these riots. Um, But, but I don't, I don't see that that movement as having the kind of staying power where this is going to go on day after day for months. I I, I think it's this little spasm that's taking place right now, and it's going to die down.
0: John, thank you very much. We promised we'd keep it to less than half an hour, and we're very grateful to you. Powerline is terrific. Read it every day. We encourage all our listeners to read it, and thank you so much for all the things you do, all you guys do.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you, Bill.
0: That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Just feel free to email the show. It's Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.